Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning knowing that you are the sovereign God who holds the future in your hands. It is our future, Lord, that you hold. And we can know that you are a God who cares for us and knows us intimately. You have saved us, and we as your people do not need to fear you. The judgment for our sin has been put on your son, and we owe you our life and our allegiance. Through your generosity, you know us better than we know ourselves. You have clothed, clothed us with righteousness. We are new because of the power of your forgiveness. Lord, we confess that while you are righteous, we are often unrighteous. We are quick to proclaim you and your work in our lives, but slow to live it out. Our lives do not rightly reflect the work that you have done in us. Forgive us for being complacent. Forgive us for not practicing what we preach. Give us eyes to see how what we proclaim doesn't match the way we live. Give us eyes to see the hypocrisy that is in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for being the one who is generous towards us and giving us eternal life in you. It is through you conquering sin and death that we have eternal life. It is through you clothing us in righteousness that we can walk through this life, reaching the end in right standing with you. We are grateful for you calling us and bringing us into that relationship. We also thank you, Lord, that we are not alone in this world, that we are not the only church that preaches and proclaims the good news. You have given us other bodies of people that proclaim your righteousness as well. This morning, we uh, pray for Can Be Christian Church and Pastor Aaron Adame. We pray that they would be a faithful witness to your goodness there in Canby. Give Aaron and the rest of the elders wisdom as they shepherd your people. May they become better equipped to care, teach, and preach your faithfulness there in Canby. This morning, we also pray for ourselves. As we enter the holiday season with Thanksgiving coming this week, we pray that we may take time to recognize all the reasons for which we do have to be grateful. For the freedom that you've given us, for life, and for peace. We also recognize, Lord, that the holiday season isn't necessarily a time of joy for everyone. For some, the holidays bring a deep sense of emptiness, whether it's trauma, a family that is divided, or loved ones who are no longer here. The holidays can be a deep reminder that, the, that the things are not the way they should be. Father, give us eyes to see the hope that we have in you, that no matter what we experience in the coming uh, days and, and months, that our hope is not found in this world, but through the hope that we have in you. Finally, as your word is open this morning, we pray that we would respond in thanksgiving, that you speak to us, your people, and we can know, Lord, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is you who speaks when your word is opened. Amen. 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 Thanks, Nick. You can have a seat. As you're getting your Bibles out and turning to Revelation 3, I just want to encourage you that just as Nick prayed for other churches, other churches pray for you, pray for us. I received a text last night from Jeff Lacine at uh, Selwood Church, and he was 
preparing his pastoral prayer in which they were going to pray for Mission Fellowship and all of you that are part of it. And so I just want to encourage you uh, that we are not alone. We're part of a bigger body, a bigger church uh, than that, just this local expression. And so that should be an encouragement to us. Well, why don't you open up to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. In 2016 and early 2017, there was a big social media buzz about an upcoming event. It was to be the rich and famous lifestyle event of the year. It was to be a music festival that ended all music festivals. Unfortunately, it would turn out to be nothing more than the culmination of an amazing marketing con. A rapper named Ja Rule, I know I'm not cool enough to say these names, by the way, or pretend I'm this young, but just go with me here. A rapper named Ja Rule and what turned out to be a con artist posing as a charismatic businessman named Billy McFarland were promoting a music festival to take place on a small island in the Bahamas uh, that spring. And it was known as the Fire Festival, spelled F-Y-R-E. They were marketing geniuses at conferences, online through social media, and by way of paying influencers that had large followings online, they promoted this upcoming so-called festival without any actual product to back the promises that they were making. The location proposed had little to no infrastructure, the timeline was far too tight to accomplish what they promised, and the budget was inadequate. When the day came for the young, cool, hip, wealthy customers to show up on their private planes to partake, uh, they were stunned to find nothing more than cheese sandwiches on white bread instead of the gourmet meals that had been pictured on their Instagram accounts. <clears throat> they found under-resourced natural disaster survival tents rather than the glamping or glamorous camping that they had been promised. Music stars began to pull out of their contracts, and local labor and restaurant owners who'd put up hours of labor and supplies began realizing they would never get paid. Now, you can find documentaries and articles on the events that I'm describing and the resulting scenes that came out of uh, the classic book, Lord of the Flies. But complete anarchy ensued, and people became beasts, only worried about escape and self-preservation. Multiple lawsuits were filed, and the con man, Billy McFarlane, ended up in prison. Now, how did they get people hooked into this ridiculous proposition? How could people have been so naive to have not asked for proof of product before they offered up thousands of dollars for something that didn't exist? How could they get conned? Well, these men displayed an experiential product that outwardly had an amazing reputation. But then when you saw what was underneath, you realized it was empty. It didn't actually exist. This is why I promote to all of you that social media is actually just one giant lie. You guys ever been at the airport when you see somebody who's taking their selfie and they get their food all right and they primp themselves and they do all that stuff, and then they're like, just taking a selfie, right? As if it was just really quick. It's a big lie. It doesn't actually exist underneath. And what the poor marks of the fire festival relied upon was the outward image the false reputation of the festival, but when they went to see it in reality, it was non-existent and found extremely wanting. It had an outward appearance that promoted one thing and an inward reality that was the polar opposite. Now this, brothers and sisters, was also the state of the church to whom Jesus will be speaking in our text this morning. 
It had an outward appearance that promoted one thing and an inward reality that was the polar opposite. In Revelation 3, 1 through 6, this was the case with the church at Sardis. It promoted itself as a church full of believing, obedient Christians. But the inward reality was the polar opposite. It was a church that was actually spiritually dead, or at least dying. They were Christians in name only. And if they were not careful, they would find themselves standing as enemies of the very one they said that they worshipped. And so this morning, in the fifth micro letter here in Revelation, we'll hear a word to the church at Sardis. A word to the church at Sardis. And that word is, wake up from your self-delusion. Wake up from your self-delusion. So a really light word this morning. (laughs) But this is an important word, and it's one that we all need to heed. So let's take a look at these six short verses, and then we're going to unpack them further. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, again, we see the same structure of the other letters. And this is purposeful. This is not just us being lazy in the way we lay out our teachings. The structure is the same as we go through. And so first what we have is we have a salutation. A salutation from the one who knows his saints. The shepherd who knows his sheep. The one who knows his saints. The opening words here are similar to those used as a salutation to the church at Ephesus. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And these salutary statements are pulling from the vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1. And he's using imagery that's from the Old Testament that leaks Christ Jesus with the Ancient of Days, with the Father God and his Holy Spirit. The imagery surrounding the seven spirits of God uses biblical numerics and Old Testament imagery. Now you might say, oh, that's too much for me to comprehend. It's not. It's very simple. It's just numbers and looking backwards to the Old Testament to set the stage for this micro letter. Seven, as you will recall, will be used throughout Revelation to speak of fullness, wholeness, and perfection. In other words, the spirit of God is speaking to the fact that he is perfectly holy. He's the perfectly holy Spirit of God. And as we learn in the vision of Jesus, this imagery of the sevenfold spirit comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, where God speaks to Zechariah that he will rebuild his temple, not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. 
And so just a few verses later, he speaks of the image of the sevenfold spirit when he says this in Zechariah 4.10, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. Perfect visibility, perfect eyesight, so to speak. Now, this imagery of eyes ranging throughout the whole earth is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture, and it states God's ability to see the hearts of every man, woman, and child, and and especially to see the hearts of those that are his, so that he can act on behalf of those that are his own. One of God's prophets speaks of this truth in 2 Chronicles 16. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Now, this truth is further amplified by the fact that we need to remember that Revelation is meant to be read in whole, out loud, before a congregation. We're so far removed in time and space and geography that we often need to break down what they're saying in order to understand it. But it was meant in the first century to just be read simply out loud in one sitting. And if this were the case, just a few moments ago, we would have come across the statement to the church at Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 23, that says, I am he who searches mind and heart. This imagery speaks to the fact that God is constantly searching and convicting and encouraging the heart of those that are his. We can wrongly take this imagery as if God is in this cosmic game of hide and seek, as if he doesn't know or has not chosen those that are his, has not elected those that are his. But friends, the picture here is that he already knows them, and Revelation will later picture the Spirit of God going throughout the earth, finding those that he already knows are sealed by him and harvesting them into God's storehouse. This is a symbolic depiction of resurrection to eternal life. God knows those who are his because he chooses them. And this is bolstered when we see that he is also the one with the seven stars. Again, seven, the number of perfect completion and wholeness. And the stars symbolize and represent the spiritual idea of the church, the spiritual representation of each church. And so this imagery is from Daniel 12. Uh, Daniel 12, 1 through 3, you may recall it, we've already gone through it, but it says this, speaking of the day of resurrection and judgment, it says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The ones who are written in the book, enrolled in heaven, if you will, allegiant to the Son of Man and Messiah, they, we, will awake to everlasting life at the resurrection. And we will shine like the brightness of the sky above like stars. How will we do that? By turning many to righteousness, by their witness of the truth of God's enthronement of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, by their, by our witness of what would become known in the New Testament as the gospel and obedience and faithfulness to it. The combination of these two phrases, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, It's that God sees those who are truly his because their, our hearts, 
Their spirits and their active witness point to the fact that they are his. And he knows his own. He knows the temple of his people and each of the living stones that make up its walls. They, we, are those who will witness by our very lives that Christ is king. Jesus is presented here as one who is constantly, constantly at work in his church, judging our hearts to see if they belong to him, not out of discovery, but so that he might tend to the wicks of the lamps that are to display his glory, trimming those who are burnt, renewing those that are flickering lifelessly, adding oil of his spirit to those that need it, bringing conviction to those who need it, and removing those that will not light. And so he then steps into the reality of this judgment as he says, I know your works. But he says to the church at Sardis, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It seems we have jumped directly into a warning, but before we get there, we need to first see the conscious omission left by Christ as he authors this letter through the angel, through John, to the church. He omitted what we have seen in all the rest of the letters. He omitted a commendation. And this is a glaring omission. It's a glaring omission. Can you go ahead and go to the next slide for me, Cameron? Slide two. There we go. Thank you. Now, when expositing a passage of Scripture, it is the number one rule that you don't want to expose or teach on what is not there. You want to expose and teach on what is there. But when working through a section like the letters of Revelation 2 and 3, and seeing that the first four letters have commendations, even Thyatira, even the sixth letter that we'll look at next week has another commendation, even though all these things are there, it then shows that it's obvious that it's not there for the church at Sardis or the church at Laodicea. It's an intentional omission. We could see that because the structure is the same throughout. Now, these churches were in deep, deep trouble. Laodicea, as we will see, had become completely useless for the kingdom of God. They had become rebelliously arrogant and were no longer of use to Christ to the point where he was going to spew them out of his mouth. But Sardis was a bit different. They were dead. Now, one might say that God's description of them is even more startling. Additionally, we see the omission of any outward or inward warfare going on with the church. With the other churches, we saw people inside the church that are teaching false doctrine and trying to take them in an errant direction. We saw uh, groups outside the church persecuting, but here we see the omission of any statement of warfare going on within the church. There are no Nicolaitans, no Jezebels within the church. There's no pagan forces outside that are mentioned. And this, too, is a glaring omission when compared to the other churches. You see, Sardis had become spiritually dead pretty much by its own self-delusion. And it's full of converted believers, supposedly, when in fact that's not the case. But verse 4 gives us some hope for this church, as it states that there are a few in Sardis who, notice in verse 4, have not soiled their garments. 
Now, this idea of pure white garments will be used multiple times in Revelation as an image of purity, staying undefiled from the pollution of the pagan world around them. Purity and faithful devotion to Christ and to his people. But this is still not a commendation of the church as a whole. This is saying you're hanging on by a thread, you're in life support, and I need to bring you out of it. Now, it provides for us an understanding of how bad things had gotten. Luckily, not to a place where Christ was going to spew them out of his mouth like Laodicea, but still horrific. This church has become spiritually dead, not because of internal or external persecution, but because the members of this church have willingly gone and dirtied themselves with the world and the pagan worship of false gods. They had not held up the priority of staying obedient to Christ. But Christ leaves no doubt, and he states this church is on life support. So next, he provides a warning. A warning. He says to the church at Sardis, you have deluded yourselves. You are Christians in name only. You have deluded yourselves. You are Christians in name only. The key to this passage is the Greek word onoma, which means name. It's the Greek word behind the English word rendered here, reputation, in the second half of verse 1. You have a reputation. You have a name of being alive. But then it's also in verse 4 and twice in verse 5. Take a look there at verses 4 and 5. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ is saying, some in your church, Sardis, actually are Christians when it comes to their work of witness. Praise God for that. But most of them are Christians in name only and have no works or activity in their life that would show that they are indeed followers of Christ. Those who are actual Christians will have their name written in the book of life, and their name will be confessed by Christ at the judgment. Those who are Christian, name only, will not. You ever notice how everybody, especially in Salem, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. You ever notice that? It's getting less and less because our society is becoming more and more pagan. But we're a little bit behind the times here in Salem. And so we still have a moralistic, nationalistic Christianity that isn't real. When I went to buy my first truck to pull the trailer for the start of this church. I walked into a dealership here in town, walked up and told the guy what was going on, said, hey, I'm a pastor. He goes, ah, oh, that's awesome. I'm a Christian too. I said, great. What church do you go to? He goes, what's the name of it again? Just so you know, this is Mission Fellowship. (laughs) Somebody asks you what church you go to, that's what you say, Mission Fellowship. Not Mission Fellowship Church, not Mission Church, Mission Fellowship. It's on the sign, just so you know, okay? (laughs) But he says, I don't know. And I said, oh, really? Like, do do you not go? He says, ah, yeah, that whole Christian thing's really kind of more my wife's deal. Right? But this is kind of the state of the world we live in, right? Many people who proclaim the name of Christ are not actually Christ followers. So what is Christ meaning here? And what is the question that we need to ask ourselves to make sure that we are Christians in truth and not in name only? 
not in just reputation. Now, this is a section that should humble every one of us, myself included, greatly to a point of introspection by the Spirit. Am I a true Christian? How do I know? Let's pull this apart a bit. Christ said he had seen their works. He said they had a reputation. And there's something that can be strengthened, which speaks to a passionate beginning, but one that was fading quickly. He finishes with the statement, I have not found your works complete. Now, all of this gives us a composite picture. The church that was located in Sardis had once been a church with enough life that it was known by those around it. Its younger years were powerful enough that other churches knew it. But instead of continuing that forward movement, continuing its work of witness to the kingdom of God and reign of Christ, it had slowly but surely begun pursuing the world, polluting its garments with their paganism and relying upon the good old days of their Christian walk. And in so doing, they had become deluded by their true spiritual state. Friends, this doesn't necessarily mean, for some of you it might, that you're going out pursuing worldly things. For others, it simply means that you are allowing the things of this life to choke out the fruit of the Spirit. Christ talked about this. Some will grow up from the seed of the gospel, but, you know, life gets busy. I got kids now. We've got Little League. Oh, yeah, but, you know, I've done the Christian thing. Now's my time to retire and travel the world. Slowly but surely, things that are not innately evil in many cases are the very things that choke out our passion for Christ. And in so doing, we become deluded about our true spiritual state. The relationship dies without us even knowing. It can even be assumed that outwardly they hadn't seemed to change at all. These folks at Sardis most likely were still gathering, maybe even doing the things they once did as a church. But their compromise with the world around them and their own individual actions made their witness as a church dim to the point of almost disappearing. Unfortunately, this is all too prevalent in the Christian church. The statistics around the number of children who grow up in the church and walk away are staggering in 2021. But then I'd also point towards the harsh reality that it's common in the American church for people to profess Christ early, maybe even show some initial zeal, but then slowly but surely fade away so that they might still be going through the motions of Christianity. And they may call themselves a Christian, but when you look at their life and you look at the motivations behind it and the priorities of it, there is little to no actual proof that they are driven by the glory of God and obedience to Christ, that they're driven by the fact that Christ had died for them and purchased them with his blood. But we then have to ask the question, was this person that we're speaking of ever even a true follower of Christ? In verse 5, Jesus promises to those that are truly his that their name is written in the book of life and will not be blotted out. The inference here is that the names of those that are not his are not even in this book at all ever to begin with. How can one do works and be passionate but then have that fade to the point where they are Christian in name only? Well, the reality, friends, is that this isn't something that can happen. It speaks to the fact that the person was never truly converted. All of their Christian works to that point were driven by a different motivation 
than the Holy Spirit's empowerment within. Now, this goes back to the fact that the church exists as both visible and invisible. The visible church is those that gather on Sunday mornings to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. But the invisible church are those in the body that are truly converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith, and endure in a constant state, not of perfection, but in a constant state of ongoing repentance leading to obedience. This is where people get broken up. They start to get in the shame cycle and they go, well, man, I just must not be a Christian. Well, friends, when you realize that, a true Christian doesn't beat themselves up or sit in that shame or think, woe is me. They say, what must I do to repent, Lord? It's not a constant state of perfection. And those of you who are perfectionists in this room, welcome. I'm not only a member, I'm the president, right? We need to let go of the perfection and realize that it's by God's grace that we will continue to endure. And that endurance is not perfection. It's an ongoing state of repentance whenever convicted. So we do everything within our power to not sin, but realize that when we do, because we are still in these fleshly bodies, we then submit to the power that will truly help us, the power from the Holy Spirit that gives us correction and repentance. Many might have a reputation for being a disciple of Christ, but then something happens when they encounter difficulty or conflict or something better comes along something that meets the need that they thought they would fill with Christianity, but they find somewhere else. In these cases, their true motivation begins to show and the secrets of their heart are divulged. Their works are shown to be driven by motives other than the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. What starts out as charitable or selfless or loving shows itself over time to be driven by the flesh and not by the Spirit and not by the witness of the church to the glory of Christ, but all of these things are diluted. And you see this over time. Time and truth are friends. Time and truth are friends, especially speaking to the reality of your heart. And this, dear friends, is why the topic of endurance is so important throughout the word, and especially here in Revelation. The mark of a Christian is that they will endure in behavior that shows that their hearts are converted. No longer do they operate in selfishness under the authority and reign of self, but they act in a way that shows that they are no longer their own. They are no longer their own authority, and they will do what Christ commands even if it is the harder way to live. Unfortunately, many rely upon the past of their Christian walk rather than look at how they act in the present. They believe that because of a prayer back then or a church service back then or that one time they really got involved in that one ministry or that one Bible study, they believe because of these things that they are a Christian. But it is in obedience or disobedience in your current actions and current works of witness to the authority of Christ in your life that the answer comes of the question of whether or not we are true believers. A church is not one outwardly because of its building or programs or past works. 
And a Christian is not one merely because he or she may call themselves a Christian or have prayed a prayer or showed kindness and service for a time. Our relationship with Christ as Savior and King is demonstrated through a constant desire to walk in repentance, a constant desire to walk in obedience as we war against sin in our lives and as we conform our lives to his word. Think of the passage where Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus sounds pretty legalistic here, doesn't he? He sounds pretty legalistic when he says, If you love me, you will what? Obey my commands. He goes on to say, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How could someone do works that seem like works of kindness and spirituality and morality without knowing Christ? Well, friends, because they never knew him as king. And it's very easy to do nice things for different motivations other than to serve Jesus. You can go do Habitat for Humanity because it makes you feel good. Because it evens out the scales of the sin you did earlier that week in your own weird morality. Lots of motivations can come from someplace other than serving and glorifying Jesus as King. But this is what it means to do the will of the Father, is to Treat Jesus as not only Savior, but also King. It means to follow his commands. This is what it means that he will call them workers of lawlessness. They operated under their own reign and authority, outside of God's law, creating for themselves a law of their own making. The church at Sardis had deluded themselves into believing they were Christians, but they had not persisted in working out obedience to the commands of Christ. They were Christians in name only. Now, brothers and sisters, as I said, we live in a world where everyone and anyone can proclaim to be a Christ follower, even with lives that speak completely, excuse me, completely to the contrary. Where might you have given in to delusion that you were acting in obedience when in fact you look just like the world around you and are in need of conviction and repentance? Where have you deluded yourselves into believing that you are Christ's and yet you don't submit your time, your talents, or your treasure to him? Those of you who are members here, please don't wait until the morning of your discipleship group to entertain this question. Think about it now. Pray daily this week for God to reveal the true answer to this question because, friends, this isn't just a question that needs to have an answer in your discipleship group. This is a question of life and death, as Jesus himself says. Friends, true Christians prioritize obedience to Christ and mutual loving submission to his people as their highest priority in life. True Christians study the word of God so that they might know it and then obey it. True Christians are faithful in relationships and realize that the measure to which they submit to one another and are faithful to one another speaks the truth in love, speak the truth in love to one another 
and reconcile with one another when conflict comes. These speak to their collective witness to the reign of Christ in their lives. True Christians live life together so that we can hold one another accountable. They don't just come and go as they please and try and blend into the crowd so that no one knows them or their sin. The reason we know each other is so that we can speak the truth in love when we see patterns of sin creeping up. Why? Because it's life and death. And I don't know about you, but I need all of you to help me in my fight against sin in my life. Doing it alone doesn't seem to work for me, but maybe I'm just the weakest in the room. True Christians quickly repent. True Christians are not perfect, but they're always seeking the help of the one who is. They're always seeking the help of the body he has provided so that we can all grow in sanctification every day of our lives. True Christians judge their obedience to Christ by their actual activity, not by what they used to do or what they intend to do when things are easier. True Christians do not have to be convinced to do what the Word clearly commands a disciple to do. Christians do these things, and whatever else the Word calls us to, not because it comes naturally or is simple or is comfortable, but because the Savior and King to whom we are allegiant and obedient has required it of us. Not to earn salvation, but because he has already done the work of salvation and given it to us freely, choosing us while we were yet embracing sin. But then by grace, empowering us by his Holy Spirit, whom he has placed in our midst. You see, Satan has ruined the witness of the church because he has propagated a lie and twisted the grace by which we are saved to say that you can be a Christian without following the commands of your king. But the word to Sardis tells us differently. So what do I do, Hans, if I'm in sin? Repent. Friends, have you deluded yourself into thinking that you are a Christian? when you are really one in name only, with no enduring obedience to back it up? If so, these next words of Christ are graciously, lovingly calling you to repentance. Because next we see that he gives the church at Sardis an exhortation, an exhortation. Cameron, there you go, thanks. My remote's not working. An exhortation. Wake up from your self-delusion and repent or face judgment. Let's read verses 2 through 3 again here. It says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Christ commands that those in delusion wake up. Stop deluding yourself and judge yourself rightly. How do we do that? Jesus says, remember what you received and heard. What is this? It's the word of God. The commands of Christ, the commands of the apostles. 
It's that which you have been given by God and taught by his truth. Remember it so that you can obey it and act out those works in endurance until the point of time that you enter into his glory. This is the point at which your works will be complete and not before. Friends, this is why you need to open your Bibles and read them. This is why Sundays are not just meant for you to take into your ears and go about your business through the rest of the week. This is our Bible study. And we give this to you to ruminate on and think through and chew over and meditate on throughout the week. Do you take down notes so that you can chew on it throughout the week, so that you can look up those verses, see the cross-references, become familiar with your Bible, so that you can know what God is commanding you? Or are you a person who says, yeah, the Bible's just not for me, but I'm a Christian. If we don't endure in this, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we truly Christians? Friends, there is no limit of how much of your life you need to give in response to the Lord, in service to the Lord. There's not one of us that can say, nah, I've responded in service to the Lord and his people enough. I did my service hours as if there is a way to pay back the salvation that Christ purchased with his own blood. Rather, Jesus says, keep what you've heard. Keep what you've been given. Keep doing it. Guard it. Protect it. And don't let it waver. And repent. Turn from the worship of self and of the world that has allowed you to soften in your passion of Christ. And instead, turn to Christ and submit once again. Friends, this morning, God is asking you the question, in what ways... Do you know that you've had conviction from the Lord and yet you have not repented? In what ways have you had conviction from the Lord? You know what it is for a Christian to walk as a Christian and yet you have justified your disobedience as if you're the one person that doesn't need to follow his commands. Friends, if you've justified yourself, I'm pretty sure that Jesus is not your justification. And so it's time to repent. If not, if we don't freely repent when we find ourselves acting as Christians in name only, Jesus lovingly, lovingly will bring judgment upon us. And he will do so quickly, like a thief that breaks in and steals and then is gone. This language is very familiar throughout the New Testament. Paul, Peter, and Jesus all use it to describe how quickly his second coming will happen, the day of the Lord. It will be at a time where the world is oblivious to his presence and, and his reign, and they will find themselves in judgment in the blink of an eye. But here it is more a statement of impending judgment, not for that day that will come, the day of the Lord, but for judgment that will come immediately, that God will bring upon self-professed Christians the realities of their own sin. Namely, he will allow them to persist in their sin and wrap tighter and tighter in the chains which bind them. Friends, when we have sin presented to us by the Holy Spirit or by brothers or sisters in Christ, which is also the Holy Spirit, when we have sin presented to us and we don't immediately repent, it is judgment that we persist in it. Why? Because our brains are getting more implanted with that sin, our habits are getting more implanted with that sin, and our ability to break free from it is getting harder and harder and harder. That's ju judgment, and it's righteous, godly judgment. 
When God gives us over to that which is not him, we cannot comprehend the weight of that judgment and its eternal effect. The final judgment day is merely a consummation of that which he has already put into effect. So friends, if you're waiting for that day, and maybe between now and then you can kind of get your act together and figure it out so that the scales of justice are weighed in your favor, you don't realize that that is not possible in your own power. And every point at which the Lord brings conviction, it is a time to repent, not continue in sin. And the Lord brings us this message because he loves us, not because he's ready to smash us, because he knows how good it is to repent and turn to him. And so praise God for the command to repent. Praise God for the ability to repent by his spirit. Praise God for the opening to repent. Amen? Amen. For it is the presence of this command to repent that speaks volumes to the mercy and grace of God for those he loves. Remember that grace, as we said last week, is room to repent. And God is not hasty in his judgment, but he gives his people time to repent from sin. And if we do repent, if we walk in a constant state of repentance, dealing with sin when it arises, enduring in the commands of Christ, then we will receive a reward. He finishes this morning with that reward. It's a reward of forgiveness and assurance and intimate union with Christ. Let's take a look there at verses four through six. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus promises here three rewards, but begins by stating clearly that there is still a remnant that he has protected even in this church that is dying. What a good God. What a good God that throughout the word, When the waters of pagan sin are overwhelming his people, he still protects a remnant. What a good God. He promises them that they will walk with him in purity, for they are worthy. And we might hear the record screech to a halt here if we're paying attention. They are worthy? As we'll see throughout Revelation, especially in the next chapter, they are worthy because they have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been washed in the atoning work of the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. They are worthy not because of their own actions, and these actions purchase them salvation. They are worthy because Jesus has already done the work, which does not remove our responsibility to respond. It's only because they have submitted their lives to the kingship that he was given when he died in their place and ours on the cross that they are now deemed worthy. They depend completely upon him. Friends, this is a great check as to whether or not you are a follower of Christ. Have you surrendered completely to Christ knowing you have no power of your own? When you encounter difficulty or conflict, do you fall on your knees in constant prayer? 
Do you seek out the Lord and his people for counsel? Because you and I, we just don't have wisdom of our own. These folks had leaned completely upon Christ, and therefore, because he is worthy, they are worthy. And friends, Jesus offers this to anyone, anyone who submits to him rather than the drawing nature of the world. They too will be clothed by his sacrifice and forgiven of their sins. And this is the first reward that Christ offers. And so friend, if you are here today and you have sin in your life that brings you guilt and shame, if you know you are walking in disobedience to the commands of your creator, then you must know this morning that Jesus died for you. He died for that very sin that you think is so impure and has made you so impure that you couldn't be forgiven. Jesus has died for that, and he was in your place in the midst of that sin. He has died on the cross for that sin, and he's asking you to truly surrender it to him so that you might be forgiven. And you can come to him in fullness of confession And place that sin at the foot of the cross and proclaim to him, beg of him, Lord, save me, a sinner. And he will hear, he will see your heart. He will hear your prayer and submit your life to him and receive his forgiveness. This is the first reward that he offers, forgiveness of sin. Do you need that today, dear friend? I know I do in the big things and in the small things. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. But not only does he purify our garments, make us clean, give us forgiveness, he says that those who conquer will also receive assurance of the security of their eternal life with Christ. The book of life that is mentioned here is the same one that comes from the idea put forth in the book of Daniel. And as we will see in Revelation, judgment will take place with the use of multiple books. The book of life is the membership role, if you will, of God's kingdom. It's exclusive for those that have been called by Christ and surrendered their lives in response to him and his people. And we get to proclaim this eternal and spiritual truth as we faithfully participate in membership within the local church. I've been asked before, Hans, where do you get the idea of membership and a membership role in the Bible? Right here. A book with names written in it, just like our membership role. Now, Psalm 69, which we read earlier, speaks of being enrolled among the righteous. If God himself has a member role that speaks to those who are active in his new covenant family, then the church is right to act out that same reality on earth. Friends, how do you believe that you have submitted to Christ when you will not submit to his people on this earth? We probably do this idea of being enrolled in God's kingdom with far less precision in terms of judgment of people's salvation, but we try to do so faithfully. And those who conquer and persist in repentance are given assurance that they will not have their name blotted out. They will not lose their place as citizens in the heavenly New Jerusalem. And friends, I know that this is a heavy word this morning. And many of us need to hear it because we are in need of repentance in our life. I can see on some of your faces, you need to hear this, just like I do, very much so. But for those of you who are responding to the grace of Christ with everything your life can offer, to those of you that right now, rather than sitting in the shame of your sin and saying, I must not be a Christian, you're saying, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for room to repent. 
For those of you who are responding this way, I want to encourage you. You can likewise judge your relationship with Christ not by the shame of the past or the worry about the future, but by your obedience today when you go to the communion table. By your obedience today as you go and speak with someone to confess your sin. By your obedience today as you say, you know what, enough of my pride and submitting only to myself, it's time to submit to this church I call home. By your obedience right now, you can say, wow, the Lord's given me assurance in this moment that I belong to him and his people. Christ wants to encourage you this morning to keep going in humility. Many of you in this church, you serve beyond what your capacity is. And God empowers you in that. You give charitably and generously beyond your means, and God empowers you for that. For those of you in this room that know that's you, I want to encourage you this morning to keep going. Keep going in humility and teachability and faithful service and selfless sacrifice. For you are Christ's, and he assures you that you are his own. And he will stay faithful in his sovereign reign over your life. And he will faithfully bring forth whatever you need to stay close to him. Even if it's conviction, even if it's trial, he does this in faithfulness. In any and every situation, your response then is, what does my king ask of me? What a wonderful question to have tattooed on our eyelids, if you will. What does my king ask of me? Not yesterday, not tomorrow, but right now. And so he gives us forgiveness. He gives us assurance. And lastly, he gives intimate union with himself and with the Father by the Spirit. Lastly, the saints are told that Jesus will intimately claim them as his own in front of the Father on the last day. In our reading from Matthew 10 earlier, Jesus speaks of the day where all will be made clear and the thoughts and intents of our hearts will be made known. And so because we know this day is coming, we should not be afraid of the persecution we will face, but we should instead declare God's gospel to anyone and everyone that will listen. This gospel that we've heard this morning, it is ours to declare as emissaries of the king. This action of obedient witness that begins with our obedience in our lives this action of obedient witness is the very proof that we are indeed Christ's. In this day and age, friends, where Christianity is wrongly attached to other ideologies and is becoming less popular to proclaim the name of Christ for fear of being persecuted, are you still willing to conquer by proclaiming Christ as your king? Are you still willing to say, even though you'll get called a legalist and your church will get called a cult, are you still willing to proclaim that this king who died for you demands obedience that makes his people different from the world around them? Are you willing to stand up and say that all mankind deserves eternal death and punishment for our own unholy rebellion against God? Are you willing to say that Christ has died for your sins? Are you willing to say that he rose again after three days and now sits alive at the right hand of the creator of the universe as your Lord and King? Are you willing to state by your obedient actions, your repentance, 
and your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ that this is indeed true? Are you willing to do these things? If so, you are indeed part of the remnant of God's people that stands purified by his blood, purposed with proclaiming the gospel to the nations. And over the years, I've seen so many Christians get so offended when their Christianity or the Christianity of those close to them is questioned. I've heard time and time again, it's not your job to judge. Go read 1 Corinthians 5. It absolutely is our job to judge. That's how we keep the church pure. But friends, the defensiveness often betrays that deep down, many don't believe that they are actually converted. And so any question will cause them to question. But those of us who are indeed Christ can state simply, watch my life. Look at me over time. Observe if I am faithful or obedient. Observe what happens when conflict or conviction comes. Observe my repentance. In the words of James, we can say to those people, I will show you my faith by my works. Not works for service or kindness sake. Not works to gain my salvation. But works that declare that I am not my own. I was bought at a price. And my King and Savior is Jesus the Christ. We each need to question ourselves deeply this morning and ask what the warning signs of dead spirituality look like. We need to discuss it amongst ourselves. We need to make sure that we are holding each other accountable, not because we want a reputation or a name or the biggest church, but because we love each other dearly and we recognize the weight of death and hell. And we want to save one another from their grasp. We need to ask this morning, am I a Christian in name only? Or does my life proclaim that I am indeed converted to an obedient citizen of Christ the King? If not, dear friend, we need to wake up from our self-delusion and turn to God's forgiving grace and repentance. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to it this morning.